Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. All right, so Matt, why did the snowman go to the farmer's market? I don't know. To pick his nose? <laughs> I know, I know. It's not that funny, but you know. Oh, God. <laughs> Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, everybody, here we are again. Now, Matt, how are you doing on this supposed dark week? Well, I'm not dark. That's, that's true. That's true. We're bright no, and doing, we're here. I'm doing well. Good. So, um, yeah, this is supposed to be a dark week, uh, but, you know, Matt and I don't like doing two dark weeks in a row. Since last week was just dark, we thought we would do a little bonus episode for you guys, and this is going to be similar to a Patreon episode. Um, so it'd be a little shorter and kind of a different format, so... If you guys like this and you like this style, go over to our Patreon channel, uh, patreon.com slash Graveyard Tales, and you can subscribe there and get more episodes like this. Um, But while we're uh, talking about that, uh, we're proud members of the Podbelly Network, so go check out podbelly.com. You can find tips and tricks on how to, you know, record your own podcast, and then you can find other podcasts to listen to. And uh, while you're at it, on the internet, Give us a rate and review. Write anything. It doesn't matter what you write. Just as long as you write something that does its job, it will help bring us up in the charts and help more people find the graveyard. So, normally this is where I'd say, Matt, what are we talking about tonight? But you don't know. I know. So, (laughs) and that's kind of how Patreon episodes work. One of us will get it, not tell the other one what it's about, and then we'll go through it. So... Let's get into what this bonus episode is. Um, This episode, like I said, is more like a Patreon. So I've compiled a list tonight from three different lists that Ashley and I actually found the other night. And it's a list of some mysterious things around the world that I thought would, you know, be kind of cool to talk about. Some of them we think we figured out, but have we really? And that's kind of what we'll talk about. And there's some unsolved murders. So if you don't want to hear true crimey stuff uh, and some of the details of those crimes, you may skip those parts. Um, I'll tell you when it's a true crime. But, you know, if you like it, cool, we're going to get into some of that. So um, all of the links to these lists are down in the show notes. If you want to go check them out, do that, because I didn't use all of the list. I just pulled parts of them now. Matt, the first one we got is the sailing stones in the U.S. Have you ever heard about these? Uh, no, I don't think so. 
Okay. It says when visitors stumbled upon scores of heavy stones that appeared to have moved across the dried lake bed of Racetrack Playa in California's Death Valley National Park, leaving a telltale trail in their wakes, scientists were baffled. So this is like a, a big heavy stone, and then you see a track in the like sand. Somebody pushed it. Yeah, like it's been pushed. Um, they say, how had so many boulders, some weighing 300 kilograms, moved as much as 250 meters across this remote part of the valley? Ask uh, Cura user Farah Canham. Now, adding to the mystery, some trails were gracefully curved, while others were straight with sudden shifts to the left or right. So some of them were, you know, curved, some of them 90 degree angles. Um, this says who or what had moved the stones? Well, a slew of theories emerged from magnetic fields to alien intervention to dust devils to pranksters. Well, it took NASA, um, it took a NASA scientist to crack the case. In 2006, Ralph Lorenz developed a kitchen table model using a small rock frozen in an inch of water in a Tupperware container to de- demonstrate ice shove, the phenomena behind the mysterious sailing stones. In winter, racetrack playa fills with water and the lake bed stones become encased in ice. Thanks to ice buoyancy, even a light breeze can send those frozen boulders sailing across the muddy bottom of the lake bed. Stones with rough bottoms leave straight tracks, while those with smooth bottoms kind of drift and digress back and forth. Warmer months melt the ice and evaporate the water, leaving only the stones and their mysterious trails. So that sounds really interesting, but I kind of have a, a, a problem with wind moving ice. You know what I mean? Yeah, There's a stone and a block of ice and wind's going to move it. So I, I'm not 100% it convinced. It doesn't automatically get lighter just because it's frozen. Right. They said something it, about the it would, buoyancy. It would, like but it would get heavier. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know ice floats on top of water, but this is a dried lake bed. And there is some water there, but it's got a rock in it. I mean, it, it. I don't understand how this theory works. It doesn't make sense to me. So I wanted to bring that up because I don't, I don't think that 100% explains it. That seems very odd. Maybe I'm just not able to wrap my head around what's actually happening. That, yeah, I mean, that may be my problem, too. But if there's any scientists out there that can explain this to us better, uh, let me know. But it just doesn't make 100% sense. And I thought, okay, that is an explanation for it. But I'm not saying we have alien intervention with these stones i just think there might be a different different theory than encasing a stone in ice and the breeze going and moving it you know what i mean yeah it's really weird it's like we're gonna make it heavier so the wind can blow it yeah yeah it doesn't work for my brain but that doesn't mean anything i got a small brain so this next one is a true crime it's called the smiley face killer Uh, Now, this says, if he exists, he's one of the world's most prolific murderers. At least 45 deaths of young men are attributed to the smiley face killer, but most police departments say he doesn't exist. Now, is there a serial killer stalking college-age men? The FBI insists no one is drowning inebriated college males and leaving behind a painted smiley face where he dumps the bodies. 
But no matter how many times officials try to squelch the theory, the rumor of the smiley face killer will not die and the bodies keep cropping up. The theory originated with two New York City police detectives, Kevin Gannon and Anthony Duarte. Uh, They concluded that the deaths of at least 45 young men by drowning have too many similarities to be unrelated. Although the theory began in connection with bodies found in New York City, it spread to include murder cases from the Midwest. In at least a dozen cases, a painted smiley face was found near a body of water where a victim's corpse was dumped. Nearly all of the victims of the supposed smiley face killer were white college men. The detectives speculate the motive may be jealousy, as all the men were good-looking, athletic, and academically successful. Sounds exactly like me. That's right. (laughs) I better watch out. (laughs) So... (laughs) If, if y'all not watching the video, you know that's, that, and I'll just tell you, that's a lie. So. Now, because some of the deaths occurred the same night, but in different states, the NYC detectives altered their theory slightly, believing that the murders were carried out by an organized gang of killers. They believed their theory enough to reportedly use their own personal money to continue the investigation when official funds dried up. The smiley face killer theory all began with the 1997 death of 21-year-old Patrick McNeil. McNeil was last seen drinking with friends in a Manhattan bar. Volunteers plastered the city with thousands of missing flyers. McNeil's body was found two months later and 12 miles away near the entrance to New York Harbor. Police found no evidence of foul play, but detectives Gannon and Duarte were not convinced. They pledged to keep working on the case. Nearly all the subsequent deaths have also been ruled accidental drownings involving alcohol. The FBI and several police organizations have researched the deaths and concluded there is no link. The Center for Homicide Research went so far as to publish an exhaustive report called, quote, Drowning the Smiley Face Theory, end quote. It lists 18 reasons that the theory doesn't hold water, including the fact that smiley faces are a very common form of graffiti and that murder by drowning is extremely rare. But a few criminologists agree with the detectives that there are too many similarities in the deaths to put it down to pure coincidence, and there have been frequent requests um, to the FBI to pick up the investigation, including one in 2008 from a Wisconsin congressman. Um, so the smiley face killer was involved was invoked as recently as 2016 after the drowning death of a 24-year-old in Hoboken. Matthew Genovese had last been seen drinking at a local pub with friends. Like so many, uh, like so many of the other supposed murders, Genovese's body showed no signs of foul play. Despite this, many Hoboken residents began to panic about a phantom serial killer possibly living among them. So, Matt, what do you think? You've got all of these forty-five victims, at least forty-five victims that have shown up, and there is a smiley face painted somewhere near where the body is found. I don't know. It sounds very uh peculiar right i mean you know the when you start seeing these similarities i mean i well i i've got to wonder this if at some point you know that this this came out that there were these commonalities and then you, you began to have copycat killings that that somebody just decided that you know, hey, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. 
Right. And, and, and maybe not, not all the victims can be attributed to a single person. Yeah. Could be a, a group, you know, copycats are like you said, a group of people. Like if there was, but I guess that would be hard to keep quiet and, and get away with if you had like a group of three or four individuals that were all murderous. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I don't necessarily think they were working together. Yeah. I just think one picks up and, you know, it's like the dread pirate Roberts. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. just pick up when one stops or whatever, or they're working in between. I don't know that it's really, it's really strange. Yeah. You know, if it's one person, they're, you know, they, they, they are quite adept. Yeah. You know, at, at going unnoticed. But I, I'll say this if I was going to choose a person to drown, a college age male would probably be last yeah. on that list. That, like that they would, said, athletic, like very yeah. athletic college male. Yeah. You think about it. I mean, if if you're if you're gonna have to kill somebody that is, you know, physically strong, drowning is probably the last way you're gonna try to do it. Right. You know, if they're if they're not if they're not drugged or something to where they're unconscious and then they're drowned. Um, I mean, you know, if you're going to have to physically force somebody underwater and hold mm-hmm. them down until they die, that's, that's a challenge for, for any, anybody, Yeah, you know, much less, you know, a strong athletic male. And I'm, I don't know. I'm reading some books by John Douglas, that guy that, uh, the mind hunter series was yeah. mm-hmm. done after and, and his book mind hunter and all that. And he's a profiler. And one of the things he says is that most serial killers, they do have a pattern in victims. So Mm -hmm. this would be a pattern of victims where they like the, um, you know, college age males. But most of the time, if it's a younger serial killer, then the, the victims are going to be elderly or very young because it, like you said, it's someone they can overpower. So right. if this was one single person, then it would have to be, I would say, an older male, an adult male, probably between my age and your age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the the reason that he's picking them is because they are so inebriated. Maybe he can overpower them. But I still think, like you that maybe the first few were done by someone, the smiley face killer. Then after Mm -hmm. that deaths were, you know, if they were drowned out of anger, because that's a very personal way to kill is Mm -hmm. drowning or or suffocating or anything like that. Very personal. Um, Maybe they put the smiley face there and said, try to throw them off the track and know it was the smiley face killer, you know? Right. So I, I think like you, I, th- I think that's probably the best bet is that it's probably copycats or something like that. But it's still weird that over 45 victims have been found with the smiley face near them. Yeah. yeah, really weird. It's common. I get it. But not, I mean, you don't put a smiley face up and then, hey, there's a dead body that pops up next to it. Yeah. All right. So this next one is also a true crime case. This is the Lady of the Dunes. Now, she was unidentified, um, and the Cape Cod murder victim 
was an extra, most likely, in the movie Jaws. Hmm. So, she was found on July 26, 1974, laying face down on a beach towel in the dunes near Provincetown, Massachusetts. Her hands were missing, and small piles of pine needles were left in their place. Her head had been crushed and nearly severed from her body, possibly with some sort of military entrenching tool. Police suggested she could have died weeks before the July 26 discovery. With no clear way to identify her, the victim soon became known as the Lady of the Dunes. Who she is, why she was slain so brutally, and who ended her life are all mysteries that remain unsolved to this day. When she was discovered, police conducted extensive searches of the surrounding dunes, combed through missing persons files, and compared tire tracks found near the scene to those of countless vehicles. Yet they found nothing to explain the murder of the Lady of the Dunes. What do we know about her? Well, sadly, precious little, this says. She was anywhere between 20 and 49 years of age, a more precise identification made impossible by the conditions of the body. Though she had uh, dental work, including expensive crowns, done in what police called, quote, the New York style, which I don't know what that is. (laughs) Me either. Um, Consultations with dentists have failed to yield any clues. Some of her teeth were removed, along with both of her hands and one forearm. Her nearly severed head was cushioned on a pair of carefully folded Wrangler jeans and a blue bandana. She was laid to rest later in 1974, but has been exhumed several times in the years since. Facial reconstruction was performed in 1979. Her body was exhumed in 1980 and again in 2000 for DNA testing. In 2010, her skull, which hadn't been reinterred with the rest of her body, was put through a CT scanner in order to produce more accurate facial reconstructions. In 2004, Serial killer Haddon Clark confessed to the murder of the Lady of the Dunes, saying that he had evidence that the police needed buried in his grandfather's garden. Clark, however, suffers from paranoid schizophrenia, and authorities doubt the veracity of his claims to this and several other murders. Over the years, police as well as amateur sleuths have pursued and put forth a wide variety of possible leads in the case. At one time, it was thought that the Lady of the Dunes may have been another victim of the serial killer Tony Costa, but Costa was convicted of his crimes in 1970 and hanged himself in his cell in May 1974 before the Lady was killed. Others attribute her death to notorious mobster Whitney Bulger, um, who is known to have removed some of his victims' teeth, but no connections between the Lady and Bulger have ever been established. Other leads have also been followed, including a number of missing persons, roughly matching the age and description of the Lady of the Dunes. All of these leads have ultimately been ruled out. While investigators, both professional and amateur, have maintained a continued interest in the slayings, the case of the Lady of the Dunes has been cold since the 1970s. And with this is a picture of a scene from Jaws, and in there is a circled picture of a lady that they say is most likely this woman, but they can't verify and they can't find that lady who is an extra to be able to verify that she's still alive. Mm. Um, So if you want to see this, it's in one of the links down in the show notes. Um, But what do you think? I I don't, I don't even know where to begin. This is, 
this is nuts. I mean, you know, how many times have they exhumed her body now? You know, several. Yeah. They're, you know, really not any closer to figuring anything out about her. No. Reminds me of like the Somerton man, you know, Mm -hmm. just there it is. You know what? You know, we, we can, we can, we can barely, barely collect any detail that would lead to her identity, much less who killed her. Right. And the posing of the body is what gets me. Um, cause there's a thing, you know, you can dump a body or you can pose a body after death. And usually the pose signifies something to the killer. Mm-hmm. Well, face down with its head propped up on a pair of jeans, probably her jeans, but she's laying on a towel and her, both her hands and one forearm are cut off, but in the place of the hands is pine needles. Right. So there's some significance to that. I think if the police could figure out what the significance to the hands being removed other than identification, you know, getting rid of identification, what is the significance to the pine needles? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. It, it was weird to me because of the, the posing of the body is the weirdest thing to me. It sounds like a serial killer, but if, yes. if you don't have any other victims that have have simul- similarities, then how are you going to attribute it to a serial killer? Right. No other serial killer that I know of, and, I've, and I'm pretty entrenched in the true crime world, even though we don't do true crime podcasts, <laughs> we do a paranormal. Um, there's not another serial killer that I have heard of that poses the body like that with, yeah. you know, putting stuff in the place of limbs, natural yeah. elements in the place of limbs. I don't know. That was really weird. I thought so. All right. So the next mystery that I've got is ball lightning. Now we've talked about ball lightning several times and Matt doesn't like using ball lightning to explain anything because it's a mystery explaining a mystery. Right. So let's see if we can unravel the mystery a little bit with this article here. It says, ball lightning is a potentially dangerous atmospheric electrical phenomenon. It's reported as looking luminous and spherical and can vary in diameter from pea-sized to several meters long. Ball lightning doesn't happen very often, so it hasn't been recorded under natural conditions. It is said to occur during thunderstorms, but it lasts a good deal longer than your usual split-second lightning. Early reports noted that the ball explodes and leaves a sulfurous odor. This says, I know we're all about explaining the unexplained here, but the cause of ball lightning uh, remains unclear. Scientists can only really theorize about how these little devil balls are created. The best explanation comes from a team of Brazilian scientists back in 2007. They passed a large amount of electricity through a silicone wafer, which created a vapor. When it cooled, the vapor condensed into an aerosol, which glowed and recombined with oxygen, leading to little balls of electricity bouncing around like jumping beans. Because of this, the Brazilian scientists reckon the ball lightning phenomena occurs when bog standard lightning strikes quartz or silica rich ground like sand. The theory has gained such traction that other scientists are rumored to have agreed. So Hmm. they're saying, you know, regular old lightning strikes um, quartz or silica rich ground. But 
we've heard about it, like we talked about it in Spontaneous Combustion. Right. Episode um, where it was seen hitting somebody, but not from, um, they weren't near sand. They weren't near a beach or anything. And another theory that I've heard put forth is that it's plasma. It's not like they're saying like um, a condensed aerosol that glowed, you know, as it combined with oxygen, then leaving the electricity um, that it's actually plasma that's created through lightning or through just electricity in the atmosphere, not necessarily a lightning strike. I don't know. I mean, I, I like the idea that ball lightning can exist. And I've I've looked into this in the past. I, it just I, I think that you would have more evidence at this point that it's it's an actual phenomenon. Even if uh, even if it's not that common, mm-hmm. and it, and it may happen so quickly that it's difficult to capture. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we could say, you know, theoretically, this could happen. Right. Um, but we don't see it. So, I, I mean, I like the idea that it's possible. I just, I don't know that. I mean, it's just like it's possible that your atoms could could meld with the atoms of this wall. And mm-hmm. you could theoretically stick your hand through and, and come out the other side. But, you know, we're not seeing that happen. You know, nobody's right, figured out right. how to do that yet. So I, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. But it, this is one of those that I'm just like, yeah, you know, when you when you can't figure it out, ah, it must have been ball lightning. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny because the ball lightning gets stuck into the paranormal realm a lot um, yeah. because of the fact that, it hasn't been proven, and you know we don't have a lot of evidence of it, like a lot of other things that you and I talk about. But unlike stuff like ghosts or shadow people, there is a concerted effort to try to understand it within the science community. So right. I don't understand why this was picked and other things are not. I'll never understand that, but... You know, we have reports of ball lightning going back to, you know, the the 13, 1400s and writings of it going through somebody's house. But we don't have we've never caught it on camera or anything. So if scientists are willing to believe that ball lightning exists without proof, why can't we believe Bigfoot exists without proof? You know what right. I mean? Right. I mean, nice shirt, by the way. Bigfoot shirt. there. <laughs> I love this. All right. So the next one we got is the Phantom Killer. Now, this is the unsolved mystery of the Texarkana murders. And I know you know Texarkana pretty well, Matt. I do. I live there. Right. So you probably have heard this story, and I know you know the movie that came after this. But let's get into some of the deets of this here, as the cool kids say, the deets. The cool kids still say deets. Or is that Maybe. old now? Maybe, Maybe. yeah. You're know. not. You're like me. You're not that cool. So, <laughs> all right. So this says in 1946, a sadistic killer dressed in a white mask 
terrorized the small town of Texarkana at night. Texarkana, a small town that straddles the state line between Texas and Arkansas, if you didn't figure that out from the name, um, is also known as the town that dreaded sundown, thanks to the 1976 horror flick of the same name. Set in Texarkana and based loosely on a string of local slayings, the proto-slasher film came out just two years after the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Black Christmas and two years before Halloween. So it's an old movie that is a classic, mm-hmm. and it's a good movie. Um, this says, yet the true story behind the Texarkana Moonlight Murders is as chilling as anything seen on the silver screen and made all the more unsettling because the case remains unsolved nearly 70 years later. The mysterious Moonlight Murders rocked the sleepy southern town of Texarkana in 1946. Police on either side of the state line struggled to work uh, as one while the killings themselves possessed an iconic quality of urban legend to them. Now, young couples parked at the end of a lonely country road savaged after the sun went down. In fact, some claim that the infamous campfire tale of lovers who catch a report of a hook-handed killer on the car radio only mm-hmm. to discover bloody hook hanging on the back door, they think that can be traced to these Texarkana Moonlight murders. Um, the killer, described by witnesses as wearing a white mask or sack with holes cut for eyes, was dubbed the Phantom Killer or Phantom Slayer, a name that, like so many, um, like so much about the case, seemed ready-made for drive-in theaters. But authorities believe he killed five people in ten weeks. Three others, including his first two victims, survived their attacks. The first attack took place on February 22, 1946, on a secluded road outside of town. The Phantom approached Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jean LeRae, a young couple parked in their car. He blinded them with his flashlight upon approach, then held them at gunpoint and ordered them out of the vehicle. The Phantom then told Jimmy Hollis to remove his pants and proceeded to beat him severely, fracturing his skull. The Phantom told Mary Jean to run. When she scrambled toward a ditch, he told her to change course and run toward the road. He then chased her down, sexually assaulted her with the pistol he carried before letting her run away. In spite of the savagery of the attacks, both Hollis and LeRae survived. Others were not so lucky. In March, Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore were found dead in their parked car at the end of a secluded road. The couple, who had only been dating about six weeks, had had dinner with Griffin's sister and her boyfriend earlier in the night. Griffin, 29, was a veteran who made his living in carpentry and painting. He was shot fatally in the back of the head. Moore, only 17, was living in a nearby boarding house with her cousin. She was also fatally shot in the back of the head. A few weeks later, they were joined by another young boy and girl, Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker. Booker was a phantom's youngest victim at only 15 years old. Martin and Booker had begun, yeah, Martin and Booker had begun dating after a long friendship, dating back to kindergarten. Now, Booker played the saxophone in the local band, and Martin came out to pick her up. Five hours later, Martin's body was discovered. Booker's body would not be found for another six, laying two miles from Martin. In the first week of May, the Phantom Killer attacked what are his last official victims, a husband and wife, in their farmhouse northeast of town. Virgil Starks 
was killed by two shots to the back of the head, but his wife, Katie, survived um, in spite of being shot twice in the face and having to run down the street to a neighbor's house to get help. That's wild. Um, While the Phantom was on the loose, Texarkana was like a city under siege. Residents armed themselves and curfews were set for local businesses. In spite of the involvement of the Texas Rangers, no conclusive arrest was ever made in connection with the Moonlight Murders. Theory spread wildly about the Phantom Killer's identity, the killer's targeting of couples, and lack of other identifiable motives, such as burglary or revenge, led many in the area to believe that the killer was some sort of, quote, sex maniac, end quote. Nearly 400 people were arrested in connection with the killings. 400 people were arrested. 400 people. So that's how hard they were looking for them without any information. 400 different people were arrested. And this says suspects included a University of Arkansas freshman who committed suicide in 1948, an escaped German prisoner of war, and an L.A. resident who believed that he may have committed the crimes while in a coma. That's, that's, that seems hard to do. Yeah, that, that's it's not funny, but that's funny that he thinks he committed the crimes while in a coma. Now, many people believe that local man named Yule Swinney, arrested in 1947 for auto theft, was the Phantom. His wife confessed to as much at the time, but by law she could not testify against her husband. She later repudiated her confession. Swinney remained in prison as a habitual offender until 1973 and died in 1994 without ever implicating himself in the murders. In 2014, James Presley, a Texarkana native, wrote what he considered to be a definitive book on the murders, The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Murders, The Story of a Town of Terror. That's a really long title. Yeah. In it, he lays out enough evidence that he claims proves Swinney was responsible for all five phantom slayings. Others remain unconvinced. A 1948 cold case involving the disappearance of 21-year-old Virginia Carpenter from Texarkana is thought by some to have been the work of the phantom killer, though Swinney was already in prison by the time. And in 1999 and 2000, an anonymous woman contacted surviving family members of the Phantom's victims to apologize for, quote, what her father had done, end quote, but Yule Swinney never had a daughter. Mm. Regardless of the killer's true identity, the town he traumatized has never been the same since the spring of 1946. So, that, I've, I've heard about that case yeah. for years. And it's amazing to me that no one has been caught to this day, you know, over 70 years later and no one's been caught. Right. Yeah. It, it, it was, it is definitely, um, one of those cases that will, will live in infamy. Oh yeah. But because it just seems like in a town as small as Texarkana, they, they would have been able to find someone who knew something, saw something, heard hearsay that would have pointed police in the right direction. And it never happened. Right. And I mean, even if, uh, even if they had had even a sliver of evidence, it, it didn't, 
it didn't tie anyone close enough to actually charge them. Yeah, and they arrested 400 people. 400 people. You think out of, out of 400 people, they even if they didn't find the actual killer, they would have found someone that possibly was connected to them. Right. That could have at least pointed them in the right direction, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Or even if they didn't at that time, years later, you know, if they had confessed to somebody on their deathbed or they were in jail, like Swinney was in jail or whatever, you would think he would have told, you know, a, a fellow inmate, hey, mm-hmm. you remember the the phantom killer? That was me. You know, but he never did that. So I don't know. It, it's in all the other serial killer cases that are similar to this, someone slips up, mm-hmm. you know, or they had, they gathered some evidence that years later they can run through like they just recently did the found through the DNA of a relative, you know, something like that, but we don't have anything. So yeah. we may never know. I mean, th- that would be a lot like Jack the Ripper. We may never figure out who the phantom killer is. And I don't know. He killed as many, you know, as Jack the Ripper did, supposedly, and uh, tried to kill more, but they survived. So it's just crazy. All right. The last one I got, Matt, Um, this one, very interesting. and, And this is not true crime. This fits more into what we do, and it's called corpse candles. So... Let's see if if the explanation holds up for this one, because I'm going to preface this by saying I don't believe it. I don't believe the explanation given. Okay. Now, back in the day, when you were transporting your dead loved one to the cemetery across the gloomy marshes, a flame or ball of light would float just above the earth, seeming to travel with you to and from the burial ground. This was aptly named the corpse candle following you in your time of deepest grief. Mystery and folklore surrounded this strange occurrence. Many associated the corpse candle with pesky spirits of the dead or other supernatural wanderers, like stillborn and unbaptized babies that were in limbo between heaven and hell. Now, science has determined that the creepy corpse candles were in fact luminescent barn owls that had fungus growing on them or... Yeah, or more likely methane gas made by rotting organic material, which is usually found in swamps and marshes. The gas can produce a low-temperature flame through chemiluminescence. Okay. So it's swamp gas and an owl. Yeah, exactly. And I did not write that as a joke. This is legitimately what they said. Luminescent barn owls that had fungus growing on them or... Swamp gas. Yeah, you know my hatred of the owl thing. Why? Why is it always an owl, Matt? Why? Why do they always say something it's, is an owl? It's not only an owl, but a bio a bioluminescent owl. Yeah, it's a glowing see, owl. See those every day. Yeah, I mean that's commonplace. I got three sitting on my windowsill right now. <laughs> yeah, I I hate that. I mean. I understand that, you know, there can be marsh gases that may ignite and you can get stuff like that. And I'm sure that you possibly could get a bioluminescent owl that has, you know, bioluminescent 
fungus growing on it. But that is not a common enough occurrence that people would see it following them to and from a cemetery. And owls are not going to follow you like that. They're not going to hop along the ground following you or fly that low to the ground following you. And owls are big. Most owls are big. Unless you get the little barn owls, you know. Um, so you would hear them poof, 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 flapping, mm-hmm. and I I don't believe that. Uh, uh, swamp gas is not going to trail after you either to and from a cemetery. So, uh, again, this is one of those explanations that I absolutely hate, and I hate it when that's a low-hanging fruit that <laughs> makes no sense. Low-hanging. Hell, it's on the ground and begun to rot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I don't know. I've I've heard of corpse candles before. Um you know, nothing very specific, but you know, I've heard of this phenomenon before. Uh I I don't I don't buy the owl or or swamp gas theory either. I think the person who put out the owl theory needs to be laughed off the scientific stage. <laughs> Uh, it's just it's so weird that that's what they go to, you know. I mean, I, I can't. I can only think of maybe one or two that we of things we've talked about that it it legitimately could have been an owl. Right, right. If anybody knows why that is a go to explanation, I would also like to know that. Why are, uh, you know, and that was brought up in the uh, Min Men lights too that it was a. Uh, bioluminescent owl yeah you know why is that a go-to answer why why is that what you and you think people are going to believe that you know and the problem is some people do believe that i want someone to produce one of these bioluminescent owls amen i would love to see one i mean if you if you find surely to god we could we can if 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 it's that common then show me one Yep. If it's common enough that there is a legend about corpse candles, that means there had to have this there had to have been a lot of those owls. So there should be one in a zoo, right? Right. I mean, you we know, put everything in a zoo, so how I mean, you know, how lazy of an owl do you have to be to let fungus start growing on you? Yeah, no joke. That's a sloth thing. <laughs> you know, sloths get fungus growing on them, but yeah. Sloths don't glow. I've not seen a glowing sloth. Yeah. But, yep, if you if you have a Harry Potter glowing owl that follows you to and from cemeteries, let me know. Um, but that that's all I got for this bonus episode. And like I said, it's very similar to our Patreon episode. So if you like this kind of thing, um, usually our Patreon episodes might be a little more blue. Um, our humor goes a little more blue in those, so um, be aware of that. But patreon.com slash graveyard tales, and you can get more episodes like this. Um, and if you like the true crime stuff, and maybe you want to hear us talk more about true crime stuff, let us know that too. Maybe we can look yeah. into dabbling into some true crime, um, you know, more in depth than I did tonight, obviously, in our typical graveyard tales fashion of research and stuff like that. But let us know. We might look into doing that. So, uh, Matt, I hope you enjoyed that. Yeah, I did. That was great. So, 
a lot of inter- a lot of interesting things. You know, it's amazing when you start digging into mysteries that have just never never had a resolution you mm-hmm. know, over the years. So, um, be sure and go and check us out on uh, on Facebook. Uh, you can get in our Facebook group. Uh, just go and search Graveyard Tales. We got a lot of great members that share personal stories, share a lot of dad jokes. Um, but there's also a, a lot of help, you know, we've seen where uh, folks come in with a problem that other people may have experienced and can give some assistance. Um, you can also find us on Instagram and Twitter. Um, please go and rate and review us on iTunes. And after you do that, you can check out our website. It's graveyardpodcast.com. There you can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise. Uh, you can learn a little bit more about Adam and myself. And as Adam mentioned earlier, that is where you can become a patron. And we thank everyone who has donated to the show. Uh, it, it really helps us put out uh, more and better content for all of our listeners. So, oh, yeah. Uh, that wraps it for this bonus episode. Uh, we'll see you again with a regular episode next week. And until that time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon.